Welcome to Season 2 of I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Caraview. For Season 2, my guest hosts chose the record, and I'll be honest, sometimes I do not fucking love it. However, I did fucking love talking to each and every one of them about their choice. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Today we will be talking about The Elephant Riders, the third full-length album by Clutch, it was produced by Jack Douglas and released April 14th, 1998 on Columbia Records. And that is the only album Clutch ever made for the label. And as far as I know, this one is actually out of print. On the other mic today is my old, old buddy from high school, fellow former record store clerk and a current senior graphic designer, Tim Fernandez. Say hi to the people. Hello, people. Why don't you tell the people just a little bit more about you? So yeah, as Derek mentioned, I uh, did plenty of years, probably too many, working in record stores. Although, you know, it's probably the only reason I can really talk about it as much as I as I do. I'm a graphic designer now for a financial investment firm, but please don't let that count against me. Because um, I really do still know about music. Really, I do. We believe you. So, Tim, this is season two. This is your choice of albums. Tell me. How did this album enter your life? Well, I actually went to a COC show, Corrosion of Conformity, when I was living in LA back in the early 2000s. I think it was 2000, 2001, uh, and Clutch was opening for them. Uh, now, I had heard of Clutch before, and of course, being a record store clerk, came across the album covers plenty of times. All I really knew of them was uh, their first single, Shogun Named Marcus, from the first album. And I didn't care for it too much, especially at that point in time, which I think was probably 93, 94, maybe when that album came out, Mm -hmm. maybe even 92. I'm not sure. But at that point in time, I I definitely kind of dismissed it as that new metal stuff (laughs) and didn't investigate any further. So when I saw them open for COC, they were playing some new songs off the forthcoming album, Pure Rock Fury. Uh, And I really latched onto Immortal for some reason. I don't know what it was about it, but it really, I really dug it. And then I uh, went back to work the next day and started scooping up all their catalog that we had. Very quickly, I realized that Elephant Riders was by far their masterpiece, at least up until that point. Uh, the first clutch, I think it's actually the second, but I think their first official release or something came out in 1993, strangely enough, when Monster Magnet's Super Judge came out, our previous conversation for those who remember season one. Uh, and so this once again came out while I was working in, in radio, and I believe there was a little bit of a push behind it because we had posters and we had cassette tapes, which a lot of times they would send because they figured, oh, if you want to bring it home and listen to it, at least you're not taking a CD or whatever it was at the time. So I remember having that first clutch album and on cassette in my car and it just didn't do anything for me i just remember being kind of dull they opened up for marilyn manson in i believe 95 94 95 and i went to go see that show the only thing i remember about clutch at this point is that they had stormtroopers on stage (laughs) amazing now i don't remember if they were dudes in stormtrooper costumes or if it was a a not doll, but you know, like a mannequin. I have no idea. I don't remember. I just remember that and nothing about the music at all. And I just, just one of those never thought anything about this band again for a really long time. Uh, the way this album specifically came uh, into my life was through you, Tim, because of your relentless <laughs> uh, big upping on this band. So anytime a new album and a new clutch would come out, you were talking about it or uh, you often 
sometimes post on Facebook about stuff that you're listening to. And Clutch is one of those bands that comes up all the time. And so to my listeners, I actually reached out to our friend Tim here and I said, all right, clearly I've missed something. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me where to start. Where do I start with this band? And he said, start with the Elephant Riders. And so I did. And I am happy about that. And that is part of the reason why we are talking about it today. Because this is Tim's album, he's going to lead the discussion for us. Tim, tell us what you got about track one, the title track, The Elephant Riders. Well, this track does a great job, I think, of establishing the tone, letting the listener know what they're getting into, what they're in for. Not only musically, it starts off with this great crash in of this really sludgy guitar riff really lets you know that this is where we're going for the, for the next 50 minutes or so. One interesting thing is I think it also kind of implies what other interesting sounds you're going to get mixed in with that too. It's not just kind of a Sabbathy impersonation. It's we're going to go in other areas too. And the guitar sound on this song at times, I think sounds like a kazoo in a way, <laughs> which which is interesting. And I don't know necessarily if you pick up on that the first time, but it's it's. I think it's one of the one of the things that kind of you absorb over time. There's lots of layers on this album, which is a trademark of any great album. Uh, never gets old, and and you notice things like this the the more times you listen. Thematically, if I can get kind of uh, conceptual for a minute, lyrically, this song kind of implies this musical invasion that's going to happen to you <laughs> to your reality <laughs> because it, the you know it creates this imagery the lyrics create this imagery of this this onslaught of elephants being piloted by civil war soldiers coming over the hill at you and in a lot of ways you can you can read into that as saying you know that's this mute that's what this music is doing to you it's coming after you and you better deal with it that was the reaction i had at, at listening just that first and of course I, I listened to it on a stream somewhere i this is one where i really wish i would have dropped a needle on some vinyl the very mm. first time i heard it because then it could do that all where everything goes away you know you put that needle down and all of a sudden boom everybody else is gone because man it's just that big fat riff that opens this up and it just has a boogie to it, which is a word you're going to hear me use a hundred times, unfortunately, on this album. Oh, me too. I had that feeling like, like how, how did this album avoid me for so long? But of course, it was me avoiding it, but let's not get tied down into <laughs> semantics, Tim. It was really that first, oh, fuck, this is good. What have I been yeah. doing? I really like it. He's one of those singers that has, let's say, like two or three different approaches to the way his vocals Uh, come across so he starts off with that where he kind of sings like he's singing from the back of his throat a little bit and then he goes into the into the more shouty i'd say that he kind of it reminds me in a weird way of of axel rose (laughs) because he doesn't sound anything like him at all but you know how axel rose would have that like mr brownstone he would sing in the lower register and then he'd Mm, have his little screeching moments not sounding like him but just where it feels like as opposed to being on a, a whole kind of a spectrum, it's like I sing down here or I sing up here kind of thing. And I think he does a little bit of that where he's got that back of the throat the, where, where he kind of opens this song. Uh, but when you get to the chorus, he does more of that kind of shouty thing. And both are great. So I, I, I do like the vocals. I like the song. I'm glad it started with this one. And that brings us on to track two, Ship of Gold. And the boogie continues. They find just that hint of that hint of blues, that hint of southern something that they put into the riffs, and it's great. 
uh, I find on Ship of Gold that he has a little bit of a delivery. It's something in the vocal de- delivery reminds me ever so slightly of Allison Chains. Hmm. I can't quite put my finger on it, but that just that was something in the back of my head. And then finally today, after listening to this album for the fourth or fifth time in the last two days, it's like, that's it. It just reminds me just a touch. Not even like, I don't even think it was something he was trying to do. It was just something that that's just there uh, for me. And there's one or two times in this album where I feel they get almost, and I'm going to use the G word to get almost kind of grungy. It's not their overall approach or sound. What do you think of Ship of Gold? I love Ship of Gold. It's a, it's a boogie and pirate shanty. I love it. It's um. This will not be the last time I mention this on this particular cast, but the imagery on this album is so prominent. So much of each of one of these songs is about creating a story or a world building. And this is no different. I mean, this is kind of, it's definitely a pirate song. It also slips into a lot of kind of psychedelic spacey guitar stuff though, too, which is a really interesting mix, but uh, they, they make it work. Clutch always makes it work. So that brings us on to track three, eight times over Miss October. That rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts here? This one's a, a kind of a delightfully dark nursery rhyme. It's it's definitely got kind of a Grimm's fairy tales vibe to it. Almost kind of Evil Dead. It's that cabin in the woods isolation kind of thing that they're going for here. Or like uh, he brings up voodoo a lot. So there's a lot of kind of mysticism in it. Dark mysticism. A lot of great lines in this song. I love, for me personally, I love the shout. The declaration of uh, across the woods when I was just a youth, I can identify with that uh, very heavily, having grown up in the sticks in New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey has sticks. And and that's like what my childhood was. It was just playing in the woods all the time. So it hit me there. Uh, it hit me so much that I, uh, when I made uh, one of my own comic books years ago, I had to name a female Russian spy character Miss October just for this song. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I like it. And for me, I thought this one is a bit more of a bludgeoner. This is like a heavier mm. song than the first two. Whereas I think, you know, the first two are just a little more straightforward where it, it, you can still you can still get a little bit of an ass shake in that riff. But I think this one's a little bit more just I'm going to overpower you as opposed to I'm going to dance around you. It's still clearly a clutch tune. You know, it still does have that that soulful delivery to it. But this one I, I really feel was a little more a little bit more with a crowbar <laughs> and and the funny thing is this is the sad like when you just read a title i didn't even realize the title <laughs> rhymes until you said something it's a little embarrassing that really does bring out that dark fairy tale aspect mm. of it that you're talking about so then that brings us on to track four the soap makers and once again, this brings back that stomp yeah you know just that swampy bluesy stomp and you know, if you told me like i ended up looking up and i saw a clutch i think is from maryland if i remember correctly right uh but if you told me they were from gulfport texas or baton rouge louisiana or even you know somewhere in alabama i totally would have believed it i could you know they're a little bit of ccr in that way where okay so ccr has that that southern boogie to them even though they were from san francisco uh, I think other than just the fact that they're what maybe just barely south of the Mason Dixon line, I think they really have more of that swampy voodoo vibe and it really comes out in this song. It's great. And it's one of those makes me upset that I missed it because if anybody remembers from season one, uh, Tim and I talked about Monster Magnet and their album Super Judge. We're both big fans of that band as a, and, and Hole mentioned this idea of stoner rock. And so for me, it's like, 
monster magnet is definitely just that new jersey sweaty city vibe you know and then you have fu manchu which is totally like the california you know big 70 van (laughs) stoner rock and you have caius out in the desert and if you throw me these guys and tell me again they're from Gulfport, Texas or something, I'm like, fuck yeah. You know, and that just adds to that. Would have been like that four corners stoner rock that would have just <laughs> made me very happy for a long time in the mid to mid to late nineties, you know. What do you think about this soap makers? Yeah, it's I think you hit the nail on the head there with thinking these guys could be from the swamps somewhere. And reading up on on the recording of the album, I think it makes a lot of sense now. It's it they recorded this in some backwoods recording studio in west virginia (laughs) so so that really knowing that really kind of um explains a lot of the weird bizarre isolationist reality that they've that they've uh conveyed through all these songs especially in soap makers i mean i hear a lot of kind of tolkien-esque type stuff in 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 soap makers i imagine dwarves or trolls (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in in the middle of the woods making soap it's a lot of lot of mythology injected into this album this this song and both the next one coming up have a lot of that and again like you said it's this song has a stomp to it it's it's chanty so before we had a shanty this one's a little bit chanty we'll see <laughs> right. if we can get any if we have any more rhymes for you later on <laughs> uh <laughs> but yeah even like going with the lyrics you're talking about because i think it mentions what a, a fiddle and a mandolin at some point yep. in the song so right yeah. I didn't pick that part up, but yeah, just that that bluesy stomp at the beginning. I just love it. Yeah. Which then brings us to track five, The Yeti. Tim, tell me about it. Yeah, more of that weird mythology, supernatural vibe. And again, of course, it revolves around a a woodland creature, right? The chant of Hima, Himalaya. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Mana, Manitoba. Uh, inside joke in my house is uh, Manitoba has just turned into a declaration in my house my wife and I both instead of saying wow that's awesome it's Manitoba yeah (laughs) we play this album a lot this song is probably the most fun it's it's got this really fun narrative and and again it's it, it just keeps driving the music sludgy and woodsy and dare I say grungy there's a couple of times just little touches of it in this album and i do hear it in this song as well i don't have a ton of i like this song a lot i don't have a ton of notes but my one note is i think every single stoner rock band should have a song called the yeti (laughs) right i think there needs to be some kind of there needs to be some kind of rule or law it if it needs to be at the federal level i'm okay (laughs) with that but i want to hear fu manchu's the yeti right i want to hear monster magnets the yeti I want to hear Nebula's The Yeti, you know, yeah. and they're all going to be completely different songs. But I think not only do I, I don't want this, Tim, I need this. <laughs> this is something that should happen. I don't know what we have to do to make that happen. If I have any listeners out there who happen to be Congress perp people or a senator or something, get back to me. Let's see what we can work out. I bet you AOC can get it done. Uh, she can do anything, <laughs> that woman. If anybody can help me, it is her. That's right. <laughs> Let's hear from our friends over at the You're Not Listening podcast. What's up, people? 
My name is Sean, and I'm the host of You're Not Listening, a podcast where we teach you how to actively listen to music one song at a time. Every episode, I sit down with my father, who was a mobile DJ for over 35 years, and we each bring a song to the table and talk about what makes it great, why you should listen to it, and why you should appreciate it through detailed analysis of the words and music, some personal stories that we might have with that, and hopefully will help you change your mind and get you listening to music in a little bit different way so you get a little bit more out of it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. If you love music and you want to figure out how you can love it even more, maybe even learn how to appreciate a song that you think you hate, it's You're Not Listening, a music podcast. Check it out. Thanks, everyone. And now, back to the show. Track six, Muchas Vices, I think it is, or Vesis, not really sure. I think in this one, he sounds just a touch Aussie-ish. Hmm. So it's just a little bit like Ozzy in some of his phrasing. I don't think he's trying to ape Ozzy. You know, I don't think he's trying to sound like Ozzy. I just think it's something something in the way he says it. And again, as a heavy band, I'm sure he, he he's up with his Black Sabbath and or his Ozzy solo stuff so i think it's something that's more just ingrained as opposed to like hey i think i'm gonna sound like ozzy on this one you know i don't think that was the approach but there's just something about just the way he says things and this one's just got a killer bass line yeah just it's just you if you don't get out of the way of that bass it is going to run you over (laughs) you are going to need band-aids and maybe some stitches just all go and just big great in your face kind of song yeah i mean this one not not only boogies, but it also swings, I think. Getting back to what you said before about them kind of reminding you of CCR at times, this one definitely reminds me of the band, specifically Levon Helms' drumming style. A lot of the same, Levon does a lot of the same kind of swing, deadpan drumming that John Paul does on this. If you listen to like Rag, Rag Mama Rag from the second album, it's a very similar beat and uh speed and and i don't know what i'm trying to say there (laughs) it's got a very similar move movement to it i'll have to give that one a listen yeah i mean it's not the song as a whole but just the drumming style i think is very similar let's go ahead and uh, move on to track seven green buckets you're up tim green buckets you know it's funny that i have a lot more to say about this album kind of lyrically and in terms of the imagery that conjures even though so much of it I love about it is the music, but it's just, for me, it really kind of hits home with a lot of, again, I'll say the world building that he does and green buckets is very obviously your twilight zone interpretation of suburbia, right? (laughs) The, the frustration of suburbia, the repression, putting the garbage out every Thursday night, he says, whatever. (laughs) And what's funny about it is it's so, the subject matter is so not in line with everything that's come before it. You know, everything has been so kind of backwards centered or swampy and, and like voodoo. And this kind of is this real world, well, tweaked real world inserted into all these other songs, in between all these other songs. Oh, it's interesting you say that because I wonder if maybe, because I find this to be probably my least favorite song on the album. I think it's uh, like what I, I call the first dud in the bunch. Really? First six songs, whatever. And I just wondered if, because it's such a different approach, and and this is an album that I've lived with for the last few days, as opposed to, let's say, that I've lived with for the last couple of years, and let it kind of get me in all its permeations. So this could be one that I I, I find that I like more later, because I don't think it's a bad song, and I just don't find it quite as interesting. And I wonder if just because it is so different 
than the rest of the album, at least uh, in that sonic approach. I just, uh, there's not a whole lot for me. There wasn't a whole lot for me to grab onto this one. I still like the song. It wouldn't be one I would necessarily skip if I was listening to the whole album, but I wouldn't find myself, yeah, man, I need to hear Green Buckets today. <laughs> well, that's funny. I mean, I, I look forward to Green Buckets if for nothing else, the the whole chant at the end. I, I love that that whole string there at the end. I sing along with it every time. I'll give this a closer listen next time. Maybe I'll, I'll find something there that I like. Fair enough. So then we move on to track eight, Wishbone. This is another one that the, the touches of grunge I, I hear in this song. I think this is the the strongest one where it really reminds me of more, let's say, 93, 94 kind of stuff as opposed to 98. But it's heavy and chunky and in all the best ways. I mean, I just I, I really dig this tune. And again, I don't think they're trying to sound like Soundgarden in 93 or anything. I think a part of their DNA because they were around at that point. Just something about the guitar, the approach of the guitar with this one. And I love it. I think this is a great song. It's really funny that you reference Soundgarden in it because for me, the one lyric on the losing end of a wishbone, it totally reminds me of looking California, feeling Minnesota. <laughs> Just kind of the same sentiment, you know? Yeah. I love what I love about this song is that it, it has all of the stuff we've heard up until this point about being the riffs being really chunky and fuzzy and tuned down and sludgy. Uh, same with the with with the beat being, you know, groovy. But this is the one where he kind of slips back at moments into his hardcore vocals from the first album and to a smaller extent the second Clutch album. He kind of returns back to that hardcore scream, maybe to say goodbye to it. I don't know. <laughs> Could be because I, I did briefly go back and listen to that very first record once again and it's got a really long title transmission something something it just to see if maybe i missed something if i was just listening to other stuff and didn't give that one a fair shake and i didn't sit down and, and i just kind of skipped around and listened to a couple of tracks and it's okay yeah i remember it being boring and i don't know if i would say that first one is boring it doesn't have that groove yeah so not to do all the albums we're not actually talking about but he did have a different vocal approach and I think you do get a little bit of it here. Brings us over to track nine, Cracker Jack. Yeah, very groovy, very funky. They actually have horns on this one, which I think is amazing. This is my entire note. I have first word is horns with a question mark. <laughs> and my note says clutch dot 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 with horns. And then the second note is horns exclamation point so that's pretty much all i have for this one because it's a fun instrumental there's a, there's always some yeah i think you're a lot like me like neither of us play an instrument I've never been in a band i've never tried to write a song or put a song together or produce a song or any of that so sometimes i find that my vocabulary for describing music is fairly limited because of that because i don't have that uh background in production or in, in an instrument so for me it's just like this is a it's a fun instrumental. I think it works well. I'm not always a big fan of instrumentals. It's like, come on, you got a singer. Put some fucking lyrics on it. <laughs> on occasion, I think it's fun to hear it, especially because, all right, they did bring something different with this one with the horns. And I've just totally taken your time. So I apologize. I go back. What are you, what are some of your thoughts here about Cracker Jack? No, not at all. I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I enjoy the instrumental much more than I think you do, at least, in, at least here. I think it's a great interlude. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. It's a fun, jaunty little number. It is. It's kind of a seventh inning stretch for this album because what's coming up next is so overpowering and so epic that uh, I think they needed to kind of throw in a little intermission 
if you will, before they get started on track 10. Yeah. And I think we, uh, we talked about this a little bit in our previous discussion, and I brought this up on other podcasts as well about where a song falls in the particular track list. Somebody obviously put a lot of effort and time into, you know, I don't think they just say, all right, here's 10 songs, put them in any order you want. You know, I think the way uh, a, a, an album is, is tracked is, is pretty important. And I don't know who generally makes those decisions. That's stuff I would, I'm kind of fascinated by hmm. I'd like to know more about but there have been times when i've i've rearranged an album that i liked and like i liked it better when certain things were in a different order but sometimes you're like all right that band put that song in the best place in the service of the album and this is definitely the case here i think we cracker jack they said we go from so wishbone which is you know one of the the heavier and probably let's say least groovy yeah. tracks so then they just go out and they kind of have this a little bit of a, a I don't, I don't want to say freak out, but it was just fun with the horns. And it's like, it just really brings that different energy. And then it brings us, delivers us here to track 10, the dragonfly. And they go out on this 12 minute long, <laughs> absolutely crazy thing. I don't even have words to describe this one as much because, and I find myself repeating because it's like I'll mention about how I'm, I'm not always crazy about instrumentals, but I like this one. And I'm not always crazy about really long songs. And, and that was a part of our discussion about Monster Magnet. But this 12 minutes doesn't go to waste. No. I'm going to let you lead the discussion on this one because this is this is your choice of an album. And what do you got for me on this one? I've always kind of considered this track to be their second side of Abbey Road. It's a, it's an undertaking and it delivers beautifully. It's huge and it's heavy and it's epic, majestic even, I would use. And it's dark, and it's kind of eerie, and it's probably the most Sabbath-like out of all the tracks, I think. It definitely sounds like something that could be on the first Sabbath album, I think. I hadn't thought about that, but I would agree. Yeah, it, it, for nothing else in tone. Yeah, this song doesn't let go, you know? <laughs> it's where we've talked before about last tracks on an album being, you want that to be kind of your slow let down you know this is not that no <laughs> this is this is this is let's kick the octane let's hit the nitro and just go until the get the fuel is spent i don't always have to have the the slow closer i like it i generally am a sucker for the slow closer but uh if you're not going to go that direction this is for example a direction that you can't go <laughs> <laughs> crazy like you said, it almost almost it feels like an entire album side. Yeah. And while it is long, it's not quite that long. No, but it goes through a lot of changes, I think. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know that uh, there are... I, I've been listening to this on Spotify, so I did finish with The Dragonfly. Because I know, I want to say there's another three tracks that were just randomly on the album, depending on which one you got. Yeah, that was very definitely... Uh... 90s music marketing at its worst, I think. What a horrible trick to play on people. <laughs> so yeah, there were three bonus tracks that uh, were randomly placed at the end as a hidden track. Uh, and there was no way to tell from the outside of the album which one you had. So you could theoretically keep buying copies of it until you found all three. <laughs> or you could buy the Japanese import, which had all three. Is a, is a huge sore spot still for me about the music industry and why they always did that to us but okay whatever that's why we downloaded all their shit for free exactly yeah so, so much that they brought upon yeah. themselves and that was one of those <laughs> things uh, the 90s where you had to buy the 
seven different foil cover comic books. And then, <laughs> yeah. uh, That's a great analogy, Derek. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. When you're talking with Tim Fernandez, you got to bring at least some comic book somewhere, you know, <laughs> you, you got to do it. So I didn't listen to any of these three. So if you were hoping to talk about them, sorry to break your heart, Tim, right at the end here, but uh, that's the way it is. I didn't, I just, I stuck with the original, the original 10 and I think ending on the dragonfly just felt like the way to go. That's fine. I mean, there's no, it's no coincidence that these three were bonus tracks. I don't think any of them are really that strong on their own. They're fun to have as a collector, you know, but I don't think any of them are really amazing. And there's a reason why they're not on the album, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. So we have zero five, David Rose, gifted and talented. Tim, just so the people know, which of those three is your favorite? If one of those had to be put on the album, or was to be put on the album as an actual track with an actual track listing that you could read on the outside. Like mm. Big boy. Which one of those three? Which probably David Rose. If for no other reason, there's references to the Philistines in it, which I think is cool. I'll leave it at that. That's about all I have to say. Tim, what are your final thoughts about this particular record? Okay. First of all, the great thing about uh, thank you for inviting me to do these, by the way, because. It's really kind of helped me to enjoy the music better by actually sitting down and having to intellectualize why I like a particular album. It's made it, you know, the, the love of it more conscious for me. And that being said, I think what I love about the sound on this album musically is this weird blend that they've stricken of this like heaviness of Sabbath uh, with kind of the punk sensibility of Black Flag thrown in there at times. But the whole thing is kind of grounded in this Southern rock kind of thing that's kind of CCR and the band. So if you take you take all that stuff and throw it in a blender, I think they've managed to, to do that. I don't know if that was their intention, but uh, for my purposes, that's what they were trying to do, and I like it. So it's, it's got kind of that Southern rock feel, but it's also heavy and metal and uh, kind of punky at times this helped set i think this album helped create that whole stoner rock scene in a way there might have been a couple albums before it that were doing that already but i think this is one of the albums that kind of helped establish it as a style as a subgenre and quickly outgrows it in the same breath the other interesting thing about this album that i love and i've said it quite a few times uh, about some of these tracks is kind of the world building that it does. It, it's created this weird alternate reality uh, of the, this, this, you almost imagine that they went off into the backwoods to, to record this album and got caught in a wormhole or something and went to this weird other world that was like ours, but not ours and came back and reported what they saw. There's a great sci-fi movie adaptation waiting to happen from this album. <laughs> that I would watch. I would like to say thank you just for recommending this album. You know, they have quite a few records out, and I wonder if I would have taken to any of those other ones that you suggested first, because I have listened to... I don't know if I've listened to all of their catalog because uh, it was one of those... I was listening to this and then a couple other things at the same time, but... Man, just the opening of this album just grabbed me and, and kind of forced me to listen to it. And I know I've listened to other stuff by theirs. I know I like it, but nothing quite made me rise to attention like this one did. I think when it comes to heavy bands, you can often say that generally heavy bands seem to fall into one of two camps. They're either in what I think of as the Black Sabbath camp or they're in the Led Zeppelin camp. Hmm. And sometimes bands kind of escape through that and you'll find, oh, no, this band's more of an Aerosmith camp. And this is one of those, I think, oh, this is more of a, let's say, Leonard Skinner 
camp. Like they, they got heavy, but they got heavy through a different way. And that's what I just really kind of kicking myself for not giving this band another chance after not really caring anything about that first album. I wish I had this album in 98. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm sure there are chances to have seen them or, or have, you know, this band to turn me on to other bands that I may have gotten into. But uh, I didn't because I mean, I liked Monster Magnet, but I didn't know a lot about the whole stoner rock thing until a little bit later. And I think, well, maybe it didn't come out to a little bit later, but it was when I was working at Vinyl Fever that I found out about Fu Manchu. Uh, a friend of mine turned me on to them. And it's like, ah, oh, these guys are great. And then there's Nebula, who I think you know, basically was what half of Fu Manchu that left. Yeah. <laughs> I, they, I've never quite liked them quite as much, but I think they're they're good and uh, a few others. And I loved Caius. That was, I should say, I should go back when I was listening to uh, Monster Magnet originally. I loved Welcome to Sky Valley. Yeah. That's one of my all-time favorites. Same here. I'll find somebody to talk to me. Maybe uh, maybe season three, we'll talk about that one, too. Right on. That came up on uh, on a playlist the other day, just unexpectedly. All of a sudden, there was a, a song from that album. It was like, oh, man, I fucking love this record. Anyway, I don't not to talk about another record while we're still talking about it. This, <laughs> this is just a band that really fell into stuff that I, I, I was, at least at one point, listening to quite a lot. Uh, and even when I stopped, it wasn't like I gave up on it, just started listening to other things sometimes. And uh, one of those... Wish I would have caught it earlier. Glad I caught it eventually. And for that, I say, once again, thank you, Tim. Thank you for joining me on the discussion today. It's been a lot of fun talking about this record. I'm going to have to go back and give it another listen to a couple of these tracks and see if maybe I can uh, appreciate some of the things that you brought to our discussion. Excellent. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to I Fucking Love This Record. If you would like to co-host an episode, contact me at lovethisrecord at gmail.com. This and every episode can be found on my website, lovethisrecord.com. If you would like to follow us on Facebook, it's Love This Record. Twitter and Instagram, Love This Record 1. Music provided by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers. Please remember to subscribe, like, and review, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>